Welcome to Real Money Talks. Real strategies from the money makers and the world changers that you can use to make millions, keep those millions, multiply your wealth, and build your team. Here's your host, author of five New York Times bestsellers, money expert on Dr. Phil, CNN, CNBC, The Street TV, Fox News, and The View, Laurel Langmire. I'm gonna. I'm still gonna call him a dear friend. It's been a long time since Harry and I have talked. The pandemic hit. Um, you know, it's uh, a lot of lot of the experts and I'd say mentors, friends, JVs, affiliates that I've done business with prior to the uh, pandemic. Um, reaching back out and bringing them all back to the forefront. Harry Dent and I traveled all over Australia together. We've done a lot of tours together. Um, the man's extraordinary, in my opinion. He's one of the world leading economists and. Uh, He's uh, his predictions are usually right. He's wrote a, an amazing amount of New York uh, Times bestselling books, uh, the Roaring Two Thousands, and just it goes on and on. So, Mr. Harry Dent, welcome. Hi, Laurel. Hey, it's so good to see you. I miss you and all our little plane rides around Australia. Uh, it has been a while. Yeah, yeah. It's that means we're both getting older, I guess. Uh, just a minute. Yeah. <laughs> been that my- long. Little Logan, remember little Logan who ran around uh, like my Mike Tyson stages. He is now 24, 6'5, was 290, played for Georgia Southern. Now he uh, dropped about 275. He just got engaged, lives in Nashville, Tennessee with a beautiful Southern Belle. Love her. So uh, give him a little backdrop before you jump into your presentation. And I'm just going to let you run because I know you have a lot to say. Beautiful information. Yeah, yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, I, I, I'm supposed to be an economist. I'm not actually an economist, thank God. I mean, I did a major in, econ- in economics uh, when, when I started in my major in college, but after the third course, I said, this is a waste of time. <laughs> and, you know, it's vague, it's, it's conceptual, theoretical, nobody can understand it. Economists can't predict anything anyway. And I wanted to be in the prediction business. Um, so, so I took everything else. I took a, my, my father's big, he, he was in politics big time and all of his big donors said, no, no, have him take accounting and finance. We wish we got that. But I took it, marketing management, everything but economics after that. And, and what I did was when, when I, and I, then I went to Harvard Business School, which I had to go out and work for a couple of years, even to get in there. It's very hard. The hard part is not the school, it's getting in. It's the hard part. So I had to work for two years, get some really big, you know, uh, reviews from from the people I worked with. And then that was the best thing I ever did because they had this case method. Uh, It wasn't like learning road stuff. They just threw a case at you and 80 people in a section all think they're smarter than hell argue over this case. I mean, it just, I've never had more fun. I never realized what I was really good at until I did that, got thrown in that kind of circus and, and, and went from there. And of course I thought, well, I'm supposed to be a corporate business consultant. I tried working for corporations before that to get my business experience for, for business school, and that didn't work out well. I tried working at Bain & Company, Fortune 100 Consulting Company, a great company, and they've been massively successful, but I couldn't even consult to these, I hate to say it, large dinosaur companies, I call them. So so I ended up breaking off. Um, uh, somebody wanted me to run turn around a publishing company, which I did, and then from there, I just kept turning around small businesses in California. And that's where I learned everything, you know, because we know the people, there's people who improve things and there's people who really create something new. I call it radical versus incremental innovation. And so I realized I wasn't supposed to be in corporate America. And my best clients would be small business entrepreneurs 
and 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 individual investors, not corporate, not large corporations and institutional investment firms and that sort of stuff. So, so, so I've just been doing that ever since. And and also running these, I I turned around six companies in the 1980s. I was just consulting, but small businesses are almost always in trouble. They don't, they can't get help, sophisticated help. So I turned yeah. around a lot of companies, did that, and then, but I was doing research all along, and and. I was learning what all of these, all the important point, all of these small entrepreneurial companies were in the new economy that was emerging back then in the 80s and not in the old economy that I was, you know, working with in Bain and Company. So, so, so that's, that's what got me oriented towards business entrepreneurs. But I, but the big thing is I had time to do the research I wanted to do that I didn't get, that economics courses didn't get me. And, and what it, the secret is, it's all about people. People drive our economy. And individuals are, are can be sane or crazy and be short or tall and all types of stuff, but they're incredibly predictable in large groups. So, and in fact, I, I got this. I was doing some research for one company. I was thinking Firestone Tires about when people drive the most and when they buy tires and automobiles and stuff. And then I ran across this survey that said, oh, the average person uh, spends the most money, not only on automobiles, but in total at age 46. And I said, well, damn, that ought to be important for economics if we know when all these people entering the workforce are going to grow up and spend the most money. And we know it down to a number like 46. So that's when I did my real research and my first breakthrough indicator. I'll show his head a, four, a simple 46 year lag on the birth index. I later had to adjust it for immigrants, which is a little more complicated. But I know <laughs> I know the ages they come in. And, and I had the best leading indicator in history when the economy would boom and bust. And I, in the late 80s, when people thought the U.S. was done and Japan and East Asia were going to have us for lunch, said, nope, we're going to dominate the next boom because we have this gigantic baby boom generation. So let's jump in. Start off, huh? I mean, Harry, I have one question before uh, I'm just going to let you go. And those of you, um, if they have questions, I'm gonna have them put them in the chat. And then towards the end, we'll just go back through and just answer and summarize a bunch of the questions that work. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Ready to go. Okay, now, now the problem, everybody says nobody, economists, and that's what I learned in the first book. Nobody can really predict the future because it passed the next election because it's too complicated and there's all this sort of stuff. Baloney. The truth is long-term trends, and ask any climate scientist or any scientist by that way, long-term trends are a lot easier. And the reason is long-term trends are driven by simple fundamental things, not zillion. Every day, the market can go up and down for all types of reasons. But if the economy is growing longer term or growing in a certain direction or certain industries, there's a reason for it. And those reasons are simple. And, and the greatest genius back of his time was Leonardo da Vinci. He was everything at once. I can't even go to all the things he did. His key quote was Sim simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Note the word sophistication. People think simplicity is simple and, and not sophisticated. It's hard to look at a complex thing and dig through and find out what is that underlying trend. And that's what we're gonna look at today. The economy's a lot simpler than most people have been told, and it's a lot more predictable than you've been told. So my promise to you, you can see the key economic trends that'll impact your life, your business, your investments, and your family over the rest of your lifetime and your kids and their lifetimes. 
Now that any economist would say that is crazy, Harry. Nobody can do that. No, that's much easier than predicting what the economy is going to do in the next year, depending on what the stupid ass Fed does and whether they raise or lower interest rates. They're just pushers. You know, they they're just putting speed into the economy or slowing it down. Okay, but this is a, this is especially important. All of what I learned from doing long-term research, all trends are exponential. There is no linear or straight lines. And, and but, but that just means now we're making so much more progress. There's been more progress made in the last 120 years since the late 1800s and electricity and all that sort of stuff than all of human history for 300,000 years. That's how long we've been around before the monkeys, okay? So, so, so this is important. Things are changing fast. They're only gonna change faster but we can see trends coming with a couple of simple tools. Now, real quickly, and I'm not gonna go over all this today in this short period of time, but what I put together is a series of simple cycles. I started in the middle here, that blue line going up and down in the middle, okay? That is generational spending cycles, okay? We know exactly when people spend, they're born in generations, they think that's another cycle. And so we can predict when there's gonna be longer term booms and busts like 1983 to 2007. And if you think, well, the boom didn't end in 2007, well, ask me how much money they printed and I'll tell you that later. We've been printing money nonstop ever since because the baby boom generation stopped spending. There is the top line of four, and this is the most important long-term trend. Innovation, technologies, different ways of working. The assembly line was the biggest damn single thing that happened in history. Henry Ford shouldn't have been famous for the automobile. It was the assembly line that made everyday uneducated people 10x workers, 10 times more productive on that assembly line. And it spread to everything ever since. Technologies have a 45-year clock. It took me a while to get that one. The, the generational cycle I got right on, okay, right on early on. And then finally, I realized there's just times where things are better politically and in the world. And, and so I came up and found a 35-year, about 17 to 18 years positive and 17 to 18 years where things are just negative. That is not a cycle that affects the growth per se, but it affects things like the stock market. When things feel and look good, valuations are higher on stocks and they do better beyond their growth. And when things look questionable, uh, you know, geopolitically and stuff, then those valuations are lower. And then on the bottom here, there's a nice little simple. This is a, another pack of cycles. By, by the way, cycles usually come in three. I learned this from the greatest climate sci uh, cyclist in history, uh, Malutin Milankovic. He has 100,000 year, 41,000 and 22,000 climate cycles. That guy nailed this way before I did on something way bigger, which just proves the point. Doesn't matter if it's more short term, medium term, what I'm dealing with, or very long term like he's dealing with. There's always cycles. You know what? He got it down to three cycles. So, so most dynamics have one dominant cycle and two other important cycles. And that's when I knew I had a more complete set. And that took me years after I got my generational cycle. But here's this real quick. My first break was 1988, after about six years of intense research, which I did half time while I was running and consulting to small companies, okay? This is the Dow Jones, the stock market, the red line adjusted for inflation. So it's real, and we don't have to deal with that here. And, and the rest of it is just a immigration adjusted birth index for the US 
lag forward 46 years for the peak in spending. And that is exactly when the average person peaks in spending. It's not 45, not 47. It is actually 47 now for the millennials, and it may be 48 for the next generation or whatever, and it was 44 for the generation before. But this is what makes it predictable. We don't have to understand individuals. Averages work really good in this sort of thing. So that blue background goes up and down. That's your predictable generational spending cycles. And then the stock market gyrates much more the red line around it, especially if we adjust for inflation. So it told me back when I had this in the, the mid-80s that this was not just going to be a boom of the baby. It was going to be the greatest boom in history. I also predicted 2008 it would that we would be down and, and, and it would be down, and you can see, for many, many years. And then the millennial generation would follow. And I was always warning people. Everybody says the millennial generation, there's more people, it's better. As a wave and as comparison to the generation before it, it only brings us back to where the baby boom, baby bust dropped. It is not a bigger generation from a cycle point of view and taking us to new heights. It only takes us back. And you see the boom to follow doesn't last as long, actually into 2037. So this boom did end in 2007. They've been printing money ever since and, and, and massively after COVID and that created inflation and now they're having to tighten. And I'm saying, watch out folks, because everybody thinks the economy's strong. It's only strong because of $27 trillion, 1.4 times our total GDP ever since the 2008 downturn. That's how much money they printed to just keep us growing modestly. And everybody thinks, oh, the economy's okay. Well, you take out that 27 trillion and we would have been in the 1930s, okay? We would have had a great depression and it would have lasted a long time. So they've been covering this over. And unless there's a new thing and God has changed his mind about this, I still say you don't get something for nothing. So you can't just print money and create a boom, which they did. So that means we're going to have to wash out this excess and all this sort of stuff. Now, Europe peaks like us similar between 2010 and 20 and then declined. Look at these things. This is the, the, the whole developed world declines forever. Okay. This is not just a generational peak. This is an urbanization peak and, 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 and a, an affluence peak. And, and one of the things people don't understand and why we always have cycles, no matter what a boom cycle makes people richer. The problem is when people get richer, they have fewer kids. They want to have fewer kids and get them all in Harvard and Stanford, okay? And the Asians are more this way than the Americans and Europeans. And, and so this creates a natural thing that even when there's a boom, we start having less kids and that means slower growth in the future and less kids to drive the next boom. Here's China. Now China is an emerging country and that's different. I, I'm not gonna go on that today, they mostly grow by urbanization. And China since 1980 has gone from 10% to 65%, massive. But still, most countries go to at least 80 before that slows down. And these people make three times, folks. That's why in the third world, emerging world, urbanization is more important than these demographic and generational booms. Because these people make three times just getting in a specialized, much more ample job market with higher wages and higher opportunities, okay? China is the first, and this is important, and nobody gets this even in, in, in anywhere. China is going to be the first emerging country 
So there's a, a billion developed country people and about 7 billion in total. So another 6 billion emerging and all the future growth is emerging. China is the first emerging country to peak in their demographics and then spending and start to go down. Japan was the first developed country to peak in 1989, ahead of the United States and America, and then everybody's following. So all these emerging countries do this, but China's already gonna show that even emerging countries get affluent enough to have peak births and fewer kids and to start to slow down the road. So, so what does China do? <laughs> It peaks here and it never grows all the way to 2100. If you're alive in 2100, congratulations. I'm going to be lucky to make it 20 more years. Okay, so so this to me is forever, and and even for younger people, declining from 2010 to 2100 for 90 years might as well be forever. Now, what's the what's the flip side of this? India, the other very large country with the same approximate 1.4 billion population. The difference with India, they're going to keep growing to 1.7 before they peak. We can project this today pretty well. And China's going to drop to 780 million. Now think about this, a country that gets to 1.4 billion and in the next 15 years drops to 780 million, loses 40% of their population. This has never happened before, folks, okay? And, and nobody would even suspect it. And we know that, that developed countries are slowly slowing, like Japan and eventually the United States and, and also Europe, for sure. But nobody would even think that, that China could drop that much. And, every, and even India will peak in 2050, 55. In about 10 or 15 years after that, they'll be peak urban about 80%. I'm not going to get into that today. And then eventually, even mighty India. But India is going to be the single most important growth country for the rest of anybody's lifetime in this room, okay? And, and China was the most important growth country since the early 80s. And the United States was the most important one from that since World War II. Okay, so not only know any country is going to do these spending waves and urbanize and when they're going to do it and how fast and all this other stuff. We also know we also can focus on the countries that are most important. Now, my next breakthrough in research a few years later after I got this spending wave, this 46 year lag. Again, you don't get a simpler indicator than that. Okay, um, I found that. Okay, that's the blue line here again on this chart. Boom, bust, the last generation, I call them the Bob Hope generation, then their bust, and then the baby boom, that big boom, and then the generation X, the baby bust behind that. That's the blue line we already talked about. But something else happens. Inflation rises out of the last winter season. That's, that's what a depression really is in economics. You get a spring boom with low rising inflation. Then when the next generation, which is bigger, enters the workforce, it costs money to raise kids. It costs money to build offices for them and expand infrastructures and all this sort of stuff, okay? Everybody, government, everybody has to pay to get this. And the parents that talked about them cost to raise these kids, okay? So that's when, when you get a new generation just entering the workforce, that's when inflation peaks. And then when they get in the workforce and start to learn and become productive people and, 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 and all this sort of stuff, that brings inflation down while you have the, the even bigger boom. So you have a spring boom, a summer inflation. So, so think of inflation like temperature, a hot summer. So summer may be fun, but it's hot and it's not as good as spring to most people. 
Then you go into fall falling prices on, and that's really good for business and stuff and all that sort of stuff. And an even bigger boom, that's the fall boom and falls another very pleasant balanced time of year before you go into, and everybody much agrees with this except for polar bears and stuff and skiers, winter comes in. So the biggest generation bust and that brings at that point deflation in prices as well. When you're seeing deflation and we've seen it recently a little bit, we saw it in spades in the 30s. Deflation means you're in winter. Deflation means you're in deep shit. Now, I don't say see it that way. I love winter because I, I love innovation. And the worse the economy gets, what's happened? Who are the ones that innovate when things get bad? People like us, entrepreneurs. That's when they have the advantage. When things keep growing in one direction, the bigger, bigger companies have economies of scale and all this stuff and big marketing budgets, and they have the advantage. Could I ask so this a is question? Where entrepreneurs flourish. Yeah. Could I ask a question? Um, on the blue line for the generational spending boom and stocks and economy from 2010 to 2020, could you explain that a little more to me, Harry, of uh, the decrease of that? So is that a yeah. generational group of people, for example, the baby boomers you know, on that on the slide we were looking at. Yeah. Yeah. So you go, you know, that slide I started with, that is that spending wave more and more. And all it is, it's a 40 today. And for the baby boom, it was simply a 46 year lag on the birth index. And I did adjust for immigrants. And, and, and that's a little more complicated, but it's also straightforward. Okay. So for example, on this chart here, what I'm looking at is the the blue area, which is essentially yeah. just a line. We're That's seeing the that the immigration-adjusted births, yeah. in other words, a, kind of a contraction, a, a relative contraction of the people that could buy things and consume. Well, has no, basically no, no, no. been that, steady. You see on this chart with the blue, mm -hmm. the, the biggest rise there in the middle was the baby boom generation, the number of 46-year-olds, which are your peak spenders on average, Okay. So, so that's the that's the sign of peak spending. Everybody's moving towards that 46-year-old peak in spending before they go down again. Okay. So that's just a 46-year life showing when that baby boom generation collectively was going to spend more and more money from 83 till 1961. Then they would peak and then they would be replaced by smaller numbers of echo boomers or generation X, whatever you want to call them, that would be spending similarly, but in smaller numbers. And therefore the economy would actually slow down. And, and people say, would say again, like I said earlier, well, the economy didn't slow down from 2008 to 2023 as it was supposed to. Oh, it did. They just printed money to make up for it. They just sent money follows to, me. to make I up mean, for it. That, that's, that part follows. In this chart, though, it doesn't look like you appeared to adjust the Dow all the way through current, the Dow adjusted know, that's, inflation. Yeah, no, that's, we'll, we'll get to that. Okay, cool. There's a good reason for that, because it goes ape shit out of, after that, okay? <laughs> the <laughs> stimulus. I mean, it was like shooting heroin. I mean, did you act normal when you shoot heroin or crack or whatever? You know, I've never done those things, of course, but you know people aren't normal, so that's why we stopped it there. This correlation was one of the... That was my breakthrough. I go give this to audience and stockbrokers. They go like, what? You can predict booms and busts over the rest of her lifetime? Well, after this, it's a different story. Okay, so, so but that's a four seat. Now, that's another principle I found in investing, okay? People are predictable. You can project, particularly by their age, and, 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 and higher income people actually peak later and, and peak much higher, obviously. But you can project sectors uh, of the economy, 
because everything peak potato chips peak at 42. Okay, just just an example. This consumer expenditure survey where I get this spending data has 600 categories down to dinky things like potato chips. And you know why it's 42? Nobody would ever guess this. I'm the only person on earth that knows this. It's because that average kid was born to that parent when they were 28 and their calorie cycle is predictably the highest at age 14. Even calorie, even calorie doctors can predict things like that, that people, kids will have the highest calorie intake around 14. Okay, so I don't want to go, you know, because there's a lot here and I'm, I'm trying to get important points. Um, another important cycle, which I was aware of early on, but it took me longer to figure out. All throughout history, and especially modern history, since stocks were invented in the late 1700s, and we didn't have stocks before then, by the way, okay, to raise money for companies. Every 90 years, we had these great resets, as these eras show. 90-year cycle. And what I later figured out, that's what led me to the technology that, that is two 45-year technology cycles. And then the people like Strauss and Howe that came up with the book Generations, and we're looking, they saw how Generations had four different personalities in them and in, in, in two groups. And, and that was that 40 times two, and that happened over 80 years. So, so again, people, and in this, and then also in this case, we're talking about technology progress that drives these 90 year cycles. Now, inflation is another thing that is predictable. No, and nobody would ever, no economist would ever connect this. Um, and, and I connected it because I had so many damn charts. I saw this red, red line chart and blue line chart on my desk at the same time. So what the hell is going on? It looked like the same chart and it was labor force growth and inflation. And then I kept thinking, thinking, oh, young people are expensive to raise. Um, young people are expensive to train when you first hire them. And this, this chart on a two and a half year lag says the correlation between labor force and, and inflation comes in on a two and a half year lag, which is how long it takes to train a brand new worker before they really click in and start become a productivity machine. And when they do, inflation comes down. So young people raising them is the biggest driver inflation and their productivity as workers into their peak in their 40s is the biggest driver of disinflation and not one economist on earth. If I hadn't have been the cuckoo guy that stumbled on this, nobody would have stumbled on this for another 200 years, okay? But it works incredibly well. And I was saying all the way back in the early 80s, not only are we gonna have the greatest boom in history, inflation's gonna go down to near zero at the top of this boom. And that's exactly what it did. Now, here's what happened though, when we got into trouble in 2008, we did have a big down year in 2008, the great boom did end and the stock market crash was big enough and the unemployment was big enough that economists said, oh my God, we can't handle this. In fact, Ben Bernanke was the head of the Federal Reserve and his thesis and his PhD was on the Great Depression. So when he saw 2008, you know what he saw? 1930. I wish he hadn't, but he was smart enough to see that because he was right. We would have been beginning a Great Depression there. So they printed a bump. What do you do? Just print money to cover it over. Printed $3.6 trillion. Now, this was back in a $16 trillion economy. That's us. 25% of the economy, and all we need the economy to grow is two, three, four percent a year to be happy. So we should have been growing a lot faster than that. But it was, remember, it was in a downtrend. So that's how they got the economy growing again. So they did that, then they leveled off for a while after 2014, and then it started to slow again. COVID hit, and then everybody got scared, and then they reeled, then they went apeshit. This and, and this is where they blew it, okay? 
They were keeping this thing going, but they panicked and printed $5.1 trillion in two years because COVID scared them so bad. I would have thought the opposite. COVID's a temporary virus. It's going to go away on its own. They had influenza, the same thing, at the beginning of the roaring 20s, you know? And it came for two years and went on its own just like that, too. But instead, they printed more than ever, and that's what got them the inflation, and now they've had to tighten, okay? So, but you see, cumulatively, over or since 2008, the Federal Reserve has printed $8.7 trillion dollars thrown into the economy. And that's why we finally got inflation in a time where, when my inflation indicator said it would have still been closer to zero and it will be in the future as well. And that's what got them in trouble. And that, and that's why we, they all of a sudden they had to tighten. Is, so again, the, go ahead. Can I ask on that last chart, Harry, was that blue area of the fed balance sheet? Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's the cumulative amount of bonds they buy. They buy their own bonds, okay? So they're issuing record debt. And how do you keep that cheap for the government? You buy your own bonds and push those interest rates down. So this is not, a, not only cheating on the economy, it's cheating for the government. They're running up more debt than ever doing all this crazy stuff, but they're pushing interest rates down by cheating and keeping the interest rate cost. So, so it, it's, this is a, basically a Ponzi scheme, okay, when it comes down to it. So again, that's why I bring in this chart and, and update it later. Is it somebody's noticed before? This is this is what this is how far after that to the, when they started printing money, the economy and the stock markets got divorced from the natural proven cycles. Okay, and if I'd have had better data on births and stuff, I could have gone back farther. And I can do it in general. I tell you, this cycle correlates way back, but but we could do it in detail here. Okay, so so what does this tell me? We have the mother of all bubbles, okay? And, and bubbles only do one thing in history. And, and, and in the last 10 years since all this stuff happened, I, I am no longer just a cycle and demographic expert. I am an expert on freaking bubbles, damn it, okay? I've studied everything ever printed on bubbles because we're in the greatest, most global and pervasive bubble in all history. I can't even compare this to the Roaring Twenties, which is the last bubble. And that also makes the point, bubbles are not normal. They only come about once every 90 years on that cycle I showed you early, earlier, okay? But now we have massive bubbles and these bubbles are going to burst. And when bubbles burst, they burst fast. And once they get enough momentum, not a damn thing you can do. So these central bankers went from overstimulating, but because they overreacted to COVID, now they've had to over tighten. They've raised interest rates so they call 5.25%, they call it 525 basis points, okay? That's the most they've done since 1981 when they were fighting the highest inflation and, and the recessions from that and all that. And, and everybody's saying, oh, well, the economy can take it. I don't think so. It's going to take a year to find out because all these things hit on a year, year and a half lag. So 2024 is going to tell whether the economy can take it. And I'm telling you what my bets are. It ain't going to take it well at all because they've already pushed this economy way past its limits for 15 years by printing money and pushing interest rates so low that everybody's been buying more and more houses, whether they need them or not, or buying a bigger one, whether they need them or not. And that's not a good thing long term either. So, so can I ask one last question, Harry? I'm so sorry. I'm just trying to keep pace with your uh, information on the previous slide. Um, 
on the previous slide, it's a bubble, and I I see it too. And by the way, I agree with yeah, you. If, if that's not a bubble, I don't know what the hell. I mean. Look but at the, the bubble, bubble is basically saying not the bubble too. I I understand. So what I basically am saying, so that everybody can maybe help follow your information um, a little easier, that the Dow Jones, the price of it, is so far away from the blue area. Now the blue area is essentially representing the amount of people, let me make sure I'm clear, the amount of people that are able to consume to sustain the price of the current stock market. It's a simple mm -hmm. estimate of the cumulative trends of a whole generation growing up and having more and more people move into the predictable peak of spending at 46, which raises the whole cumulative spending until 2007 and then reduces it until 2023. That's but it's that a is. bubble it's a because indicator, it's, but it's measuring a big important trend and okay. very accurately, by the way. But it's a bubble because, put the disparity aside, it's because the price shouldn't be able to keep up with what the people available to consume are able to be able to sustain you is that The economy price. has been stimulated to the point that it did people are buying way more and spending more and getting way bigger houses, all this sort of stuff. And their stocks are going up, giving them profits they don't deserve like normal investors. It's been so overstimulated that we are like, like we were in the greatest boom in history at the very time from 2008 to 23, when natural trends would have said, oh no, we're gonna have a slowdown in spending from the baby bust until the millennials come along in 2024 to 37 and create the next boom and the next boom will be smaller. It just says we're overstimulated and, and, and that means to just get back to normal, we'd have to crash 70, 80% is what it basically means. Thank you, thank normal. you. Now, this is the net result and this is what it created, okay? 500, now actually this number uh, it would probably be about 600 trillion now. So let's call it $600 trillion in global financial assets, okay? When, when I say financial asset, that's everything. It's all re real estate, personal, business and investment, okay? Uh, it, it's all stocks, it's all bonds, corporate, government, you know, all this sort of stuff, all debt, okay? So, and, and why this is important, this I call the biggest number in the world financially or, or economically. Because global GDP is now just over 100, while this number is now just getting over 600 trillion. So there's what I'm saying, there's six times the financial assets as there is the total annual GDP in the global economy. Why? Financial assets are, are factoring in what things are worth in the future as well. Stocks are not just the earnings today. It's 10 years projected out, discounted back at a, a risk-free rate of return. So, so this is an important number. And, and I'll tell you why it's important. When I go back and look at what normal financial assets to GDP ratios would be, it's normally two to three. So three would be on the overvalued side. Two would be normal and, and safe, okay? So there's six times. What does that tell me? What do we have to see here? A giant financial asset bubble burst that gets us down. So just, just to go back down towards normal, 250, that's what this chart is saying, that arrow going down from 573 to 323.7 says it would take about $250 trillion. That is two and a half times total global GDP, just to give you some perspective, disappear just to get us back 
where that spending wave said kind of back to normal, which means investors lose a lot of money. And you know what it really means in the Great Depression? Yeah, rich people lost money because they own most of the stock, but real estate wasn't the big bubble back then. And, and rich people own a lot more real estate now. Um, that the rich people, the, the higher income people, people in this room are going to lose the most money because 80% of people, uh, I mean, 20% of people own 80%, 86% of the financial assets and 1% own 40, okay? So, so this is this is unique. Normally, okay, rich people can wait this stuff out, but but this has been particularly a financial asset bubble, more like the Roaring Twenties. And financial assets are going to go down the most and take a long time. They're going to be very slow to come back at first. Now, another this is an, an here's my under the ground indicator, secret indicators I get from people like Lacey Hunt, one of the few economists I listen to, because economists have no connection to people in business. I always say economists have never had sex and never run a business. And that may be a slight over exaggeration, but it's not a big one. Okay. If you've known many. Okay. So, so this is, this is really, we've been, the debt we've been borrowing increasingly with all these lower interest rates and stimulus has just been getting more, less and less returns from those debts and investment. That's a bad trend, folks. And here's the second thing. This is the, my ultimate secret indicator called the velocity of money. Again, I've had Lacey Hunt speak at every one of my conferences for the last 20 years since he spoke at mine and, and explain this chart because I've seen other economists put it up and they don't know what it means. Velocity of money when it's going up means, and this is everybody, governments, consumers, and businesses, the money we're investing in, everything from housing or capital investment or, or plant and equipment, all this sort of stuff, okay, or government building, buildings and roads, all of this money, if, it, if money velocity is the truth indicator, if it's going up while this is happening, it means the money's being invested productively. They're getting returns enough to pay back the capital with profits and then reinvest more. Now, when it's going down, like it was, if you see the leftist chart from 1918 to 32 and 46 into World War II, it means the opposite. Yeah, yeah, we keep investing more, but we're not getting those returns. And that is what happens when you have bubbles. Bubbles are a sign that money velocity is falling or vice versa, falling money, money velocity is a sign. We're not making good investments. We're over-investing, not getting the returns, and it's not going to end well. So this money velocity falling always ends in one thing. It's called a depression. And back then, it was the Great Depression, followed by World War II. That was the worst time in entire U.S. history. And now we got this thing falling into now. And it says, watch out for the next several years. I mean, almost guaranteed. China, emerging country, and the largest, second largest. Same thing. Here's their velocity money. Been dropping like a rock. And talk about misinvesting money. Anybody in this room know how many homes are empty? How many homes have been built and have been sitting empty for years in China? 22% is probably even higher than that now, okay? If that isn't bad investment, I don't know. So their money velocities drop relatively even more than ours. And then people say to me, well, Harry, this isn't a bubble because da, 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 da. Here's a chart, okay? Look. Every one of these is a bubble, by the way. We're in a bubble era like the early 1900s. But look at this last one from 2009 to 2021. If that isn't a bubble, then what the hell is? People are dumber than shit. They got black covered glasses over. This is how delusional people can get. And they have all these 
books in history, the mass, the delusions of mass crowds or whatever, that sort of stuff. Because when everybody else believes it, people believe it. So people aren't really that stupid. It's the crowd thing. This is a bubble and bubbles burst. And if this bubble goes back down to normal levels, my estimate just from this chart would be 85%. Okay. Your stockbroker tells you, rightfully so, 90% of the time. Sit through most corrections because most people don't know how to time it and you'll just mix the next boom. Right. I love stockbrokers for that. They're good. Not now. Don't listen to your stockbroker now or any financial advisor because they'll tell you to sit through this. You'll be down 85% and you will be dead before you catch up if you ever do. And nobody ever will because they will sell somewhere down there and then they'll wait a long time to get back in when it's high. So this is a bubble. Make no mistake about it. Here's another great thing, a logarithmic chart, which already reflects long-term exponential growth, okay? We got this trend of the last major bubble in 29 and the biggest crash in history over the left in the 32, 89% in stocks, okay? Well, look now, we're back up in 2000, the first tech bubble, and now in 2021, the second one, at the top of this chart, and to get back down and just test the bottom, and we're not gonna stay there forever, but it's a long way down, same number I put over, minus 86%. Do you want to sit through stocks minus 86%? And do you think if stocks go down that much, the economy is going to be okay? So people who are working have to fear losing their jobs. I typically got a job. Kiss your boss's ass right now. I don't care if you hate him, okay? And but for entrepreneurs, get ready because when things fall apart, things open up. Uh, older businesses are having to exit things that are unprofitable and lay off workers. So you can hire anybody you want. Markets open up. This is what works the best for small companies if you're agile, but most important if you see it coming. Now, the global real estate thing, I'm not going to spend more time on this. This is a whole topic. This is not equal, okay? Asia, China, Hong Kong, East Asia has had the biggest bubble and, and Japan had the first giant real estate bubble and the first giant crash. They were ahead of us, okay? And then it's, uh, I speak a lot and so does Laurel, Australia. <laughs> These guys have better, way better demos because of uh, Asian immigrants. And I mean, high quality immigrants, high income, high quality, higher quality than the population on average. But they have a, one of the greatest real estate bubbles and Australia is going to get their ass kicked by the real estate bubble, not so much by the demographics, because they're still going to be selling to Asia for many, many decades, even when their economy, uh, their people do age. So you see Sydney and Melbourne, yeah. then L, you know, the highest LA and San Francisco, California, the most overvalued, Honolulu. So the value is there, but everything normal down there, there aren't many cities. You can see major cities around the world, the United States, they're anywhere near normal valuation. So real estate, the difference between this and the last downturn in 2008 stocks went down 57 percent real estate went down 34 but this time real estate's going to go down at least 50 percent and and that's what's going to hit people the worst so and, and again if you look at, at bubbles this is the shanghai composite their stock market you know that is is one of the biggest bubbles i mean i'm sorry this is shanghai real estate and remember stocks crash a lot more than real estate okay and, and, and people buy real estate on leverage. That's what makes it more dangerous, the leverage. Real estate is almost never going to crash my stock. But here I've got a forecast of 78% crash in everyday real estate in, in places like Shanghai and China. Now, 
The Chinese have 75% of their net worth on average in real estate. We have 38% in the United States. So this real estate bubble is going to crucify these poor Chinese people who have incomes more like 12,000 compared to our 60 to 70,000. Lower income people. And by the way, a lot of Chinese everyday people have a second and sometimes a third home sitting empty because there's no rental market there because everybody buys, you know, and, and it's so cheap and all that sort of stuff to buy in the past. And so when this crashes, everyday people are going to lose that seven, most of that 75% net worth. That's going to be the biggest real estate crash in the world. Thanks for listening to the Real Money Talks podcast. Your host has been Laurel Langmire, author of five New York Times bestsellers, money expert on Dr. Phil, CNN, CNBC, The Street TV, Fox News, and The View. Want to learn more about off-Wall Street investing, tax strategies, and multi-million dollar business strategies? Visit liveoutloud.com slash podcast for past episodes, show notes, and resources. For some special wealth building gifts only for Laurel's podcast listeners, visit liveoutloud.com slash podcast gifts. Do you have a burning question for Laurel? Visit asklaurel.com to submit your question, and it may just be covered on a podcast episode. So stay tuned and be sure to subscribe to get new episodes every week.